lazy now. I think that ruthless, like that drive, like that twenties drive when it was around sort of later twenties as well, where I was like, I need to step up now or it's not it's gonna not happen. happen. And a lot of my friends were at uni, finishing their uni degrees and then moving on into jobs and I was still working at a cinema. Again, nothing wrong with that, but I knew that I was not fulfilling my skills at yes. all. And so this, like, sort of almost like it became too loud for me to ignore anymore and I was going to start being... I was a shocking waitress, by the way. I was... Someone told me once, I oh, can we get a smile with that? And I was just, like, fuming. And I look back at myself, I'm like, are you smiling? Are you being nice? I'm like, no, I was just projecting pure... <laughs> rage because I was not fulfilled. I was just like, so it got to the point where I was like, you have to do something. And it just, yeah, it, it became impossible not to. So I just buckled down and did it. Hey, I'm Dan Brophy, and this is Quit Your Day Job, a podcast for frustrated creatives. This is a podcast for those whose eight to six is a means to an end. Those who are looking for a way to connect the dots between the thing they love to do and the thing that they do for a living. Each week, I'm going to talk to someone who's engaging with a passion and making an income from it. I want to find out how they came to discover the thing that they love to do what their day-to-day looks like, and how they came to monetize their skills. Whether you're stuck in a job you hate, looking to break through a creative block, or trying to discover that thing that you just love to do, this is the podcast for you. My guest today is Jess Harris. Jess Harris co-created and co-stars in 20-something alongside one of her best mates, Josh Schmidt. 20-something is now screening on Netflix, and I urge you to see it, not just because it's laugh-out-loud funny and a poignant time capsule for the period in which it was made, but because it is the perfect example of someone who is making work that is directly referencing and inspired by their own human experience. What I love about Jess is that, unlike most people who have to dial it up in order to seem interesting enough to stage a TV show around, Jess is one of the rare people who has to dial it down so that she can fit inside the TV. She's quite literally one of the funniest and most unusual thinkers I've ever met. And you can tell how much I'm enjoying this conversation by the fact that I'm pretty much laughing constantly throughout the interview. I wanted to talk to her about her ain't nothing to it but to do it attitude that led her to create 20-something. She channeled her fear and frustrations about not knowing what to do with herself in her 20s into two amazingly funny and well-observed TV series. Now faced with the problem of what to do in her 30s, I wanted to check in with her to talk about what form her passion for storytelling and performance is taking now. There is no formula for success, but the best place to start is by working with what you know. This episode is a great one to listen to if you want to make work that is self-reflexive or you're wondering how to make a start in an industry that is as seemingly overwhelming as the film and TV industry. I call this episode, How to Write, Direct and Star in Your Life. This is Dan Brophy's Quit Your Day Job, a podcast for frustrated creatives, and this is Jess Harris. 
I love to ask people, first up, when people say to you, hey, what do you, what do, you do? Yeah. What do you tell them? I've always found that question really <clears throat> stressful because I do lots of different things. So I sort of scan my head of what to respond with and I try and keep it to the immediate. So at the moment, I'd say at the moment, I'm doing a director's attachment. And, but I say I write, I direct and act. Is that right? Yeah. So even now, I don't even know if it's the right response. Well, when was the last time someone asked, someone asked you that? Some hey, what people do you, what ask do you do? all the time. They do. I get asked at the dog park when I'm walking my dog and a stranger's like, a stranger asked me half an hour ago what I did. Everyone, that's our sort of first go-to thing is what do you do? I think I've always struggled with it because I don't like being defined by what I do. So, but yeah, I say that. I write, I direct, I act. And I oscillate between all three of them. And do you focus on, like right now you're in the middle of a director's attachment. Does that yeah. become higher up the list of what you do when you're doing it? Yeah, probably. Just because people need something to either, like, well, what do you, they always, then the next thing is, what are you doing now? Mm. So you say what you're up to at the moment. But then I'll, I'll like, backtrack and say I did this or I did that to sort of... Validate. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes it'll be the very real response is nothing right now. So that's when I pat it out. <laughs> what do you want from me? <laughs> sometimes so... I say that, though. I go, what, what do you mean? Like... Work-wise, am I happy? Or am I living? <laughs> I like to ask people, well, what are you investing your energy in right now? Mm. Because for some people, it is just purely like their nine to five. And for some people, their yeah. nine to five is just what's taking up their time until they can get to the thing they really care about. So they're yeah. like, oh, actually, I'm working on a, on like a web series and I'm spending all my sure. nights and my weekends working on that. But I do, like I work in retail, but you know, they, yeah. and they'll have their, you know, their two things running in parallel and the nine to five is actually the, the least investing one yeah so uh, <laughs> so many many people i mean right now i was really excited to talk to you for a while now since even having a podcast but it seems to be particularly apt now because mm -hmm. 20 something's on netflix which is the tv series that you made two series of yep that i i was had a well a small work walk on role into both series and behind, and, and behind the scenes i was doing the show, all the, like on, pretty much full time yeah i was doing uh extras casting but so I'd love to talk about that, especially also now that you are, you directed the second season of that and now you are doing more work in the directing space as well. Yeah. But let's cast all the way back to kind of, the, like around the time I first met you, early yep. 2000s, that would have been circa uni time and that would have been before you and Josh made the local access Channel 31 version of 20-something that then was the launch pad into getting it as made as an ABC series. Mm -hmm. So did you go to uni and were you thinking about being a director at that time? Okay. <clears throat> Never went to uni and no, I wasn't thinking about being a director at that time. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do at all, but I knew I wanted to be in the entertainment industry, whether it was, like if I'm being really honest, my initial drive was to act. That was my sort of childhood thing. And I always wanted to entertain by that way. And so I didn't know how to get an agent or, or do any of that. And I didn't even know if I'd be any good at it. So I was like, well, I created a place in which I could learn and explore what part of telling stories I wanted to do. So whether I wanted to act or write or direct and all of the above. So in creating 20-something for Channel 31, I got to do all of it and work out what bit I liked 
didn't like. Could you, had you ever directed anything before? No, nothing. I've done nothing. And I remember sitting there. I, could, I can't spell very well. I'm a terrible, I'm terrible with grammar. And so I would sit down to write something. Not, I don't I know, just picked something that I knew, which was not knowing what to do and base it around that. As in the, the storyline <laughs> of 20-something has always been, yeah. we're in our 20s and we don't know what to do. Exactly. And so do you think starting with subject matter that you were so familiar with took, because I actually think that's probably one of the hardest things is having subject matter that you have researched such a degree that you are an authority on that, which is why when you see films made by kids at film school, they're, they're encouraged to write the thing that they direct but oftentimes they're really inspired by things they've grown up watching. So they're trying to make stuff based yep. on adult concepts they've never truly experienced, which, so is, which is why things end up seeming really cliched. Yeah. <laughs> they're so dealing why with are you like, dealing with this issue? Yeah, with lo- the loss so of a child or you know something. <laughs> like I remember seeing a, a, a feature fil- a student film by a, a third-year um, VCA student and like this, this woman like had a really long drink of water and she slams down and she's like... I want a child. And you're like, the, 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 the person who made this is like 23 and they probably don't want a child. So therefore, like, what are you drawing from? Like, and what mo- was in her way? The, uh, like, I think maybe it was, it was, the, I, I don't know. She was, it was just about wanting and like, you know, like, yes, there's always like true emotions <laughs> like at the core of these things. But then, like, they're extrapolated out into these, like, you know, adult dramas that are meant to be... I want to see this. <laughs> I'm inspired. Um, but um, I reckon that if, uh, you know, you just <clears throat> drawing from subject matter that you were not just familiar with, but you had actually lived, probably meant that the hardest part was taken away. So then you could focus on the directing and the writing of it. Yes. And look, back then, the Channel 31 one, I'd be lying to say I was directing that. That was not, like, I didn't know what directing was at all. It was just Josh and I making it and creating it and our mm. friend with a camera. So I, it was just very, sounds like a wanky word, but explorative. Like we were not, I didn't know what I was doing. Mm. So um, it was, yeah, pretty raw when we watch back those episodes. I'm just sort of storming around this <laughs> <laughs> desperate to be heard, frustrated waitress and even my performance, I'm just like screechy and yelly. And like... I think you were never more authentic than in those early episodes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that Jane. That's why my voice is so raspy. I'm still spending my weekends being screechy and yelly. But what I mean is that, like, for me to sit here and think that I had a, a grand plan, and when I had a plan, I don't want to undersell what I was doing, but you know what I'm trying to say. Mm. I was not, I didn't go to film school, so I didn't. Josh had more knowledge on filming than I did, so he very much caught a lot of the shots and then he was an editor at the time, so we would sit in his bedroom and just, you know, bang it together. So it was a real collaboration of both our skills um, at the time and then we, when we went to do the ABC one, I think that it was, you know, we were ready because we'd done six episodes of it, but we'd never worked in... Um, the, like the hierarchy of a production and it's everyone's proper job and it wasn't just us with lapel mics on running around my sister's front garden. You know, there were certain things that we didn't know about the... What's the word? I don't know. The um, process or Yeah, the, or like the, mm. the rules. Maybe that's not the right word. 
But do you think also as well, like, not knowing the rules? Like, I think something that really cripples people who do go through film school, especially when they have a really easy time of it, you know, the, the big film schools like AFTERS and VCA sometimes produce students that are so used to th- having such a luxurious setup in which everything is done according to the fantasy of what working on a feature film mm-hmm. is like. And then they get out into the real world where it's just up to them to make stuff. Yep. And they sometimes freeze up because they've never seen it before and they get crippled into inactivity because they it's not what they've been led to believe for the previous three years. Yeah. So maybe coming from the other side where you're just like, well, we know that we want this thing, we'll just keep on muddling around until we get the, yep. the result, kind of makes them, maybe, maybe made you more... I don't know, you would have believed in yourself in a way that you might not have if you had been led to believe it was a, looking like an Australian feature film should. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Like, there was a sense of, well, we always just used to do it. Like, there was an episode where I was retaining a whole lot of lost dogs. So I was like, oh, well, we'll just call our friends, get all their dogs, and, you know, just knock up, knock on people's door, borrow their pug for an hour and bring it back. And then we needed a van. So I was like, right, I'll just call... Rent a bomb, hide a van, got our own signage made up in magnets, put it on that. And just, like, everything that we needed, we just found a way to do it. And it was never blocked. So we had a very strong sense of, well, we just find a way well, either, to yeah, make e- it happen. Either you give me the department head to do it or I'll do it myself. Yeah, mm. and I think that's, well, that's where we came up a bit of a block with the ABC, where it wasn't as, like, we did a lot of it, but you go, well, there's... Um, so I was trying to find that word, like processes or like, you know, you would have insurance and you would have safety officers and you've got to, you know, put everything. It becomes, like, there's so much to making a TV show, like the scheduling of it, everyone's roles and everyone's department has their, you know, they, they're all... Their process, the hierarchy. Yes, yeah. Mm. Um, that has to run very efficiently. So I guess in terms of us just being on Channel 31, running around, to then having a whole crew of extremely talented people that have been working in the industry for a really long time bringing our show to life was <clears throat> amazing at the same time but then it's trying to find a way to negotiate sort of all of those expectations that. yeah so when you i mean how did the how did that process look for you to get it from a show that had been so you made it for channel 31 and for those yeah. who don't know channel 31 is a melbourne local access channel that is has a lot of non-english speaking Stuff on it. It's got you know local news. It's got. Mm. I did a film review fishing show shows. on there once. So fishing shows, Lots haberdashery, of driving shows. <laughs> <laughs> that was naturally our natural fit. <laughs> so, so, totally, and it was. Uh, it's yeah, perfectly Melbourne, and then you fit into that um, slot. But you made a sh- you made it six episodes for them, and they loved it so much they kept on just playing it on repeat. I think this, they'd sh- they'd have a run of it, and then they'd just repeat it and keep on playing it. Again and again. Yeah, I remember there yeah. was a point at which they played it like multiple times back to back because it was like the only original comedy yeah. that they'd ever had. And well, we called it. them up when we'd finished it. So we had six episodes. I remember getting on the phone just being like, Channel 31, <laughs> calling them from their phone. Hello, I have like, a show. I was like, I've got um, six episodes of a show that I would like to put on your channel. How do I do that? And they were like, right, okay, you know, fill out this application, do this, do that. And then we had to get, uh, we got RMITV on board to pay, because you had to pay to have it on there. Right. So it was like, I think, $500 an episode maybe to pay for Channel 31 to play it. Right. Um, and so, yeah, we sent in the application. They're like, yeah, sure, we'll play that. 
And then once you, so it was on 31. Yeah. And then what was the process like? How, how long between it airing on 31 and you getting the go ahead from ABC to make it as an ABC series? Um, it was probably maybe like a year or a year and a half. It had been on the shelf for a while and we sort of let it go and got a great response from it. People watched it. We got a couple of green guide write-ups on it. So sort of like this, oh, okay, well, you know, we created it, we put it out into the world and we move on. I did another Channel 31 show called Studio A. Josh went on to do a trip around the world sailing with Jesse Martin in which then he made a documentary called Five Lost at Sea and he submitted that to the ABC and he also submitted 20-something as his sort of like showreel. And Debbie Lee, who was head of comedy at the time, saw that and was like, well, love the doco, what's this as well? And um, encouraged us to apply for a thing called Stitch, which was a film Victoria ABC collaboration where they were doing a call out for narrative comedy. So we applied for that. That was a weekend workshop and three projects from that went on to get ABC2 commissioning. What were they? Uh, Please Like Me was one of them. And another one I think was called Bruce, which was one, I haven't seen that one, but it, I think it got made into web series. But, like, there's so many hoops, so many steps in which it couldn't have, could or couldn't have happened. And um, if Josh hadn't put that episode in his showreel, probably would never have happened. Well, it wouldn't have happened. So what was it about the, the process of turning it into a... You, you did a 10-part season... How many, how many episodes were season one of 20-something? Just six. Six. Mm. And did you, did you design that thinking it's, it could only, ever, only be one thing, we'll just give it all we've got as yeah. like a... You know, it might not go to second series, mm. so this is our all. And I remember when, when I was working behind the scenes on it, I was doing extras casting and... It, it's really funny to watch now because it's pretty much every single person we've ever met <laughs> in every minor role behind, like, you know, no. party scenes and throngs of, like, you know, backpackers on tour buses yes. and, you know, um, prostituting car park and no. angry man. school teacher and we made her a prostitute on the street. <laughs> um, it was such a fantastic example of, like, okay, how can we just get everyone we've ever met in the mix, but people yes. were so enthusiastic and so excited to jump on board. Oh, that's so good. And it is such a huge part of a show and it's a big part that I don't think people realise. Like extras having, and especially if you're trying to create a world like 20-something with parties and tours and uh, it is, it really creates an authentic world. So you did an amazing job and so many people have said to me, why are all your extras so good looking? <laughs> like, well, because... A very good-looking friend has a lot of good-looking friends, but more just that it is a huge part of creating that world. It's actually really funny because many <laughs> of the people are just people that I either knew from working as a doorman at nightclubs or, <laughs> as, or in, like the, in going to modelling castings. So it is funny. Sometimes you see um, like open for inspection punters rocking up, and they're like models. They're I just like <laughs> like they're just... Mallory Mallory Jansen yes. is like a huge. Thing in the LA, in LA. At the oh, moment. really? Yeah, she's made. She's done heaps of amazing shows. Oh my god! She's, okay. She was in Gallivant and um, lots of stuff, and so she's like full made it. And in episode one, she's, she's a, just a punter <laughs> arriving to an open perspective. Like, she sort of crosses frame. 
Oh, I love fantastic. it. And even like, but the unfortunate thing is it backfired <laughs> in some regards because we're meant to have like policemen who are legit police, but our policemen look like strippers because they're models. <laughs> And I give one of them a sort of a look. I'm like, thank you, officer. And he's just like ripped under his shirt. He looks oh. like, you know, because like, it's a rented uniform and the only thing that really defines, like, a policeman is that, that they're not meant to look like a Bonds model. Like, they're yeah. kind of, you know... Uh, 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 oh, oh, I'll put this back on. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, and so... <laughs> Where were we? <laughs> Stripper cops. <laughs> um, there. So, so I, I, I'm interested in the idea that, but in the so, Twenty Something had a second season, mm-hmm. and in that, was it immediate? Did you know straight off the back of season one that you were going to get a season two? That's right. You're asking, did I think if season one was going to be just it, if that was it? And no, did not think we would get a season two. Well, it's never. Um, it's more often not the process that happens is that something gets aired and you see how it goes. And I don't think many people get guaranteed second seasons but we Mm. went into season one thinking if this is it what a dream how amazing what a great opportunity and we had the wedding at the end of season six it was this beautiful um ending so we were really happy if that's all it would be but obviously you you set something up you want to keep going Mm. so we were thrilled that we were able to do another season but I think it was a good six months maybe to even eight months that we didn't know. But I just started writing straight away. Well, not straight away. I lie, I needed to recruit. But I I was plotting, hoping, and wrote some of the scripts before it had been greenlit. And my advice to people is always do that. Like, I think things take a really long time. Mm. And, and also never to... stop. You know, sometimes people be like, wait till things are commissioned. Like, I don't know. I was constantly preparing for that to potentially happen so that when it did, we were able to turn it around quicker. Mm. And the thing about writing is it needs so much time to slow bake ideas. Oh, my gosh. Like the very best films usually have, you know, tens of hundreds, like sometimes a hundred drafts of a, of a yep. screenplay. And usually in America when something's turned around fast, that's done by ten people. Mm. And so, but if, if you're the only person working on something, you need to find a way to get those drafts up. Yeah. And by... Probably and, and generally that's not a paid time thing. That's mm. just a how many hours are there in the day that you can write and rewrite something. Yes. So the idea that you could slow bake it as as much as possible when you are turning something around from one season to another yep. means it would only be as good as the amount of times it was written. Yeah. Pretty much. You got to redraft and redraft and redraft and be really brutal and know when to edit things down and when to take notes. Like taking good notes and feedback is. I really enjoy that process, even sometimes if it's something initially you don't get because it's mainly just because you've lived in that script for so long. Sometimes if a note's not sitting right with you, you always try it out because you can always go back, but you may have a little breakthrough that Mm. if you didn't try, you're like, no, that's not going to work. So just constantly learning how to be more efficient, um, make it more dense and push it to be the best it can be. Because also, I mean, when you're a director, there are so many variables. I mean, I was even asking you just before we started rolling mm. about you're doing a director's attachment right now yep. and it's all in the editing process and it's post-production. And post-production compared to the actual production, 
when you're on set, there are so many variables. Yeah. And when you're a director coming to set, you really, I think you're a bit better at rolling with the punches and seeing what the crew and the talent is bringing to the table and the mm. weather's doing and all that jazz because you've got no choice but to be very agile, nimble. Yeah. But when you're a writer, it's very easy to have your fantasy about how it's going to look and be. Yeah. And then if someone's giving you notes on that and it doesn't gel with your preconceived idea of mm -hmm. what it is, you're, you're not trained to be malleable. You're actually, you've been reinforcing your vision every day. And every yes. time you've sat down at the computer, you've been back to my world and back mm. to my, my fantasy of yeah. what, what it's going to be, what it is. And so I think maybe the idea that, you know, as a writer, you could learn to be as malleable and, you know, free-flowing as a director mm. would make that process better. When you went from series uh, one to two, actually, well, this podcast is called Quit Your Day Job, and ultimately the idea is celebrating people who are, have chosen to pursue that thing they love to do. Yep. But when it comes to making film and TV in Australia, it's really hard to know whether you're going to be able to do it. You know, mm -hmm. it's not like there's a world of opportunity. You kind of... Um, tend to come up with, you know, the hope that it'll, it'll turn up the way you want it to. But yep. in the lead-up to making the show, during the two seasons and post, did you go back to another line of income to support yourself while you were doing it? Like, is the Jess that you see in the show who's working, waiting tables and doing random jobs, is that indicative of the Jess IRL that was... Absolutely. ...that was living that life to get to have an income? Yeah, absolutely. It's... Always, I've waitressed through my whole journey. When things are good, you take some time off and, you know, you can support yourself. But I've always gone back to waiting tables or working in retail or babysitting for my older sister. <laughs> I don't know. And what you charge her a premium because, yeah. quite frankly, that, <laughs> the level of care, you can't, money can't buy that level of care. I'm not just going to love her for free. Um... But, yeah, always. And I think that um, I always get to a point where I think, oh, maybe those days are done, not that there's anything wrong with those days, but I think maybe you find that balance. But it's sort of lovely that there's some practical work that you can go back to that's consistent and you pay rent, you know. Like, it's a very real reality of having to just survive. And, and I don't mean that dramatically, like, we, you know, not survive, it's... More Cover your bases. Exactly. Uh, also, Nothing wrong with that. When I was doing nightclub doors throughout my twenties, yeah. I got all my best material from talking, well, that's the talking thing, to though. people. And I love, like, I honestly do love, which is why I probably do a million different things because to have everything channeled into one thing, I don't think I would be satisfied. And I love. Um, there are times where you're sitting at your desk writing and it can be quite isolating. You're living in this make-believe world. Sometimes the whole industry can seem like absolute bullshit. Like, what is it all about? And then sometimes just going to work at a cafe, interacting with people, chatting, doing physical work, being physically tired, moving around, eavesdropping on people's conversations. It's seriously written a lot of my scripts. And so I've always found that I need to do lots of different things mm. in order to feel balanced so yeah I love switching it up doing something different how could you yeah it's funny to think that say for example you enter a world in which you are working on film projects back to back mm. you would have to go out of your way to to connect with that same 
interaction with the with you know with yeah. regular folk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it's really funny. I, I do observe that the more successful people come in in the film and TV industry, even in Australia, where it's fairly you know smaller scale than what it would be like doing it in Hollywood, for yep. example. But people's first couple of projects tend to sometimes be very rooted in a real life experience. Yes. The more detached you get from reality, when all your friends are famous, you're living in a level of wealth that most people don't understand. Your dramas are kind of different to oh, the average those person's people. dramas, <laughs> and then you just see them like tr- try and like write stuff about like the day to day experience, and it becomes like. I mean, I remember even like PJ Hogan who made Muriel's Wedding and that was such a beautiful observation of yeah. um, of life. And the reason why Muriel's Wedding is so exquisite in my mind is because of the nuanced observations that are then taken to an abstract space with the comedy of them. So but good. at the core of it is a nucleus of, of yeah. an exquisite truth. And then he made Mental a couple of years ago and it's it's kind of a facsimile of his memory of what it was like to, to be having a real life 30 years ago and a lot has been lost in the process. I haven't seen it. So it's it was good. like, it was it was the heightening of the absurdity of the humour but without the nucleus of truth at Got the centre of it. Yep. So all it then becomes is like a camp farce mm-hmm. because all of those actual real life observations which made the work so poignant in the first place weren't there. Yep. Um, and so I think it's actually interesting the idea of if you did, you know, have one foot in reality in terms of just engaging with real people in the day to day and then made work reflected on that, mm. it would always sort of, I don't know, be more relatable. Yeah. Um, when you, in the, you know, when you have done a day job, how have you found the time to have a creative life on the side of it? Would that be like a, I'll give myself an hour at the end of my work day, I'll do it before I go into work, I'll spend all weekends writing or working on my creative mm-hmm. process. Did you have to work hard to carve out creative time alongside your bread and butter income work? Yeah. So in my 20s, when I was, say, using that as an example for writing 20-something, I found an old diary a while ago when I was moving house and it was a handwritten diary. It was like, you know, cafe shift, um, cinema shift and working at Red Bull, I was doing, like, primo work and I was like, fucking hell, I was back-to-back busy. All my weekends were blocked out working. I worked Monday to Friday and then weekend work and then I would write about around that. And I had this idea that I was sort of maybe partying more in my 20s. But I think that was early, early 20s. I know around the time that I was trying to get 20-something happening on Channel 31, I buckled down and sort of disappeared from that partying scene for a while and just worked. And do you know what? I don't even really remember it that much. But I know I had my little MacBook and would squirrel away whenever I could. And, yeah, I think that... I, I don't even really quite remember how I made the time, but I remember looking at the diary going, whoa, that was jam-packed. I feel lazy. I think I'm lazy now. I think that ruthless, like that drive, like that 20s drive, and it was around sort of later 20s as well where I was like, I need to step up now or it's not going to happen. happen. 100%. And a lot of my friends were at uni, finishing their uni degrees and then moving on into jobs and... I was still working at a cinema. Again, nothing wrong with that, but I knew that I was not fulfilling my skills at all. And so this, like, sort of almost like it became too loud for me to ignore anymore. And I was going to start being... I was a shocking waitress, by the way. I was... Someone told me once, I can we get a smile with that? I was just, like, fuming. And I look back at myself, I'm like, are you smiling? Are you being nice? like, no, I was just projecting pure... 
<laughs> rage because I was not fulfilled. I was just like, so it got to the point where I was like, you have to do something. And it just, yeah, it, it became impossible not to. So I just buckled down and did it. I really uh, identify with that. I think through your 20s, especially the early part of your 20s, when you have energy to burn, mm. it's actually not a bad thing to be working 17 jobs because yeah. the alternative is you're just getting smashed because yeah. you have so much energy to burn. It's got to go somewhere. So yeah. it's going to go on the dance floor if it's not going to more productive measures. Yeah. Then it, around 27, 28, around that time a lot of um, rock stars kill themselves, you, <laughs> <laughs> you end up having this... you saying I escaped that? Just you narrowly, narrowly <laughs> you narrowly escaped the Twenty Seven Club, and I'm, this is actually an intervention. Um, I know I'm aware. Just get a T-shirt. Should have been in the Twenty Seven Club. Twenty Seven Club <laughs> just missed. Um, I observe all the many friends. I remember being um, a junior at like I was also driving around giving stuff out for radio stations. Yep. I think when I first met you, <laughs> I was probably sleeping through my alarm for the early Saturday morning, like, on the road for oh Mix 101 and Goal 104. Yeah. And we were giving away, like, packs of honey soy cheesels in outer suburbs. So and much fun, though, wasn't it? It was so great. But I observed a lot of people who were in that late 20s brackets um, in the same industry who were getting very nervous about the fact that they hadn't been put on the radio, even though they'd been promised, like, yep. radio gigs. And there was this freak out that I noticed <clears> a lot of guys and girls in their 20, late 20s, and I was in my early 20s when I observed this, 2021, like, oh my God, they're flipping out. They're meant to be somewhere and they don't know, and they're not there where they want to be yet. Yeah. And then sure enough, I hit 27 and 28, and I flipped out because I was still working doors, not that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. I was still, um, I was making video, making film mm. was a tenth of my income, and I was yeah. still working for free most of the time. And I was just thinking... My God, this is not where I want to be. Like yeah. I'm actually, I'm old enough now to actually be. I should be seeing some returns for my investment for what I'm actually really care about. Yeah. And that begun the process of like, okay, well, I have to sacrifice whatever is possible and mm. necessary in order to have some return for my investment. Well, no one's going to give it to you. No one's going to be like, oh, look at that guy over there trying really hard. Let's reward him with this. It's just you got to create it. Yeah. And... Well, I mean, that's maybe a good, a really great idea as well because I think you do get a very stilted view especially if you're in a film school that you will leave your education and you will step into an industry with opportunities mm -hmm. waiting for you and I know that all my friends who are a decade or two older who came up through the promise of what the 80s film industry in Australia suggested that they would have in terms of work yeah and then getting into the 90s and all those opportunities just drying up with the change of government because you know like yeah. in the late 70s there were I think like 33 feature, Australian feature films made every year, like le late 70s to early 80s. Yeah, right. There were 33 Australian feature films because there were such huge tax benefits for people to make oh. films here. That's why they churned out so many, like, um, you know, so many films, but also lots of B-grade films, and there was just a huge yeah. industry to be part of. And then with each year, it just dwindled more and more. So if that was what the reality you grew up with as a kid, and then mm -hmm. you became an educated like, mid-20s person and... And, became, and looked around in the late 90s and went, well, fuck, what am I meant to do? Where am I yeah. meant to work? Like, what am I meant to do? But see, we grew up a decade later where there were never any real opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> so people were like, you want to be a filmmaker? Like, that's so, we could, like, you know, good on you. Like, yeah, whatever. Right. Like, what does that look like? So I think we've only ever 
You only know, know what you know. You only know what you know, and then you're also expected to make your own opportunities. No yes. one's actually telling you that there is an industry waiting for you to mm. to leap into, and you can just work your way up the scales. Yeah. You know, you're almost thinking, well, unless I'm really masterminding this myself, this yeah. project is not going to get made. Yeah. And so when you, uh, you know, along the way, mm-hmm. you, you went from 20-something season one, which was you wrote it, you started it, and Paul Curry directed it. Yeah. By the second season, you took a bigger hand in the process of directing it yourself. Yeah. You, you and Mika Tran co-directed yep. it. Yeah. Was that something that while you were in season one, you were thinking, if we got this again, I want to, I want to direct it next time? Or how did that come about? Um, that came about was, I think, the second season. Uh, so Paul had to go back to LA and I directed the post-production of season one. And also as well, Paul's been a huge mentor figure in my life in terms of working in this industry. Um, and I remember him sitting me down when I started to write the Channel 31 and you know taught me all about uh, you know episode arcs, series arcs and all this stuff. So in working with him on season one, I learnt a lot by observing him and working with him and then in taking on the edit of season one I learned sort of uh, I saw the whole process from pre to shooting to post on how to bring it all together and in going into season two we were like well I you know I know the world so well I knew how to articulate myself better having been through a season I knew how the machine ran so it felt like a natural progression for me to step up and take on that role. Um, but then the whole idea that I'm in it as well, and we knew that I needed someone to help me with that, bring it the outside perspective when I was performing. So we brought on Mika. Mika is a friend of ours from our circle as well. And she'd done mainly film clips and a lot of stuff, and, and she'd been there through the whole journey with Josh as a friend as well. Like We all came up through Reach. So we knew that she knew our sense of humour knew the world that we were trying to create and she's very um, she's always been very supportive of Josh and I so mm. we knew that she would get the humour, get the world so we thought, we just went out for coffee and was like, is that something that you think that you'd be interested in and would it work? And it was a gamble because we'd never all worked together before, um, Mika hadn't taken on a series like this before nor had I, so we were going into mm. a season with two relatively inexperienced directors. Um, so it was a gamble in that respect, but it worked out really well. You know, mm. it had its challenges, I'm not going to lie, but it was um, just because it would have been really hard for Mika to come on board when I knew it so well. So it would, at times I felt like maybe I was, it, I, people might have looked that I was too not flexible and not taking on someone else's thing, but it was just like to come on on something for a second season would have been very challenging for a director because so much is set up mm. um, to sort of have your own stamp on it would yeah. be trickier. Um, so, yeah. What were the biggest challenges in terms of stepping into the role as a director when you had previously mainly focused on performance and, and had someone else thinking about the The challenges was that it was it took a bit of the fun out of it. It was really quite stressful. I could see myself when I watched back the rushes, sort of um, overly focusing on other things, like tense, even just like tense jaw, because I was just watching everything and not from like a control freak perspective, but just that 
in order to keep something as the original vision, every day you go in and you've got to protect it. And so it was just a lot to to think about and there was so much that I wanted it to be to constantly protect that um, world mm. um, was yeah, in terms of other actors sort of you rock up, you focus on your character, you think about where you were before and then you get in the moment and you have fun and you connect and you listen. And I think it took away some of my ability to be in the moment and just perform and just forget about a lot of other things. Like I know I was in a scene with Hamish. We were, end of the day, we had 10 minutes to get the scene and it was just like so stressful. And he just looked at me and was like, forget about everything and we'll get it. And I just, I was almost like jealous for a second of his perspective where he just he gets to come on mm. and just be fabulous and fun. And I was like, yeah, I just got to. So I think in terms of creating a world that's more, that supports being more fun and at the end of the day, it's a comedy, you want to have that fun, fluid performance. I think taking on all of that may have affected that. If you did a, a season three or if there was a 20-something TV movie for any net, Netflix execs <laughs> that, are, that are watching or listening, um, would you do the same thing? Would you, would you write and direct and, and star or would you want someone else to direct so you could just have fun with it? I don't know. I haven't thought about it. Um, I think I will always be involved to an extent in the directing of it. Um, but... Oh, it's a tricky question. Mm. I think that it would be, again, potentially, like I said, with the, with the thing with Mika, it was bring your on, direct, empower, but then it would be like, oh, but I like this and want it like that and mm. I have a very strong, and, and as does Josh, like Josh is in a huge part of creating the world and picking locations and the music and so I think that we'll always be involved. I don't think we could ever, for this particular project, mm. step back and just let that go. Um, so, but in other things, uh, I would love to write some stuff and completely hand over the direction and do that. But I think for this particular show, we would always be involved in that but, element. <laughs> because I think filmmaking is such a collaborative medium, you really have to relinquish control to the the village and see what they're going to do. Yeah. But the tricky thing about this storyline is it's your life. Yeah. So therefore, if anyone, if it would, it would be even more difficult to yeah. let someone else tell the story because if they didn't do it right, and right is really right by your recollection of how it should exactly. feel. Exactly. Totally. Um, it's that there's would, no right, right, but mm. it's there is a way in which you've for a very long time been attached to when you're writing it. I. Very much like I hear all the dialogue, so I've heard it for six months writing it a certain way, and then it's sort of you got to learn to be, and which is why these couple of director's attachments that I've done have been so amazing because it's just stepping back and focusing just on that and how to get better at that. Well, I'd love to touch on that. So, you're doing a director's attachment currently. Is this, what is the show you're working on and which director are you attached to? So at the moment I'm doing The Wrong Girl, season two, and a director is Matt King and he did uh, quite a few episodes of the first season um, and, yeah, it's been great. It's been really awesome to sort of 
step back and not have to worry about anything else except that particular part of telling the story and how it all works. And what makes, you've spoken of the experience really positively, mm. but what makes a director's attachment particularly rewarding? How does he, what does he facilitate for you on set that makes it really worthwhile? Well, I mean, he's been really generous because I'm sure at the end of the day having an attachment may be a bit of a pain in the neck because you are literally shadowing them constantly. Everywhere they go, you go. So it's, you know, um, every meeting you're you're in there. You know, there was a whole pre-production. The shoot, he always made sure that there was a little apple box for me to sit next to, next to him. So it was... Um, I was blown away about how generous he was in in bringing me into that world and and taking the time to train me to be a director. Um, and it's just I'm a big watch and learn person, and so just what not you've got like you've got a role, but you don't really have a job. So it's finding how to be on set is sort of a bit awkward at the start, but in just by watching sitting there watching everyone and everything, how it all happens, um, you just learn so much. What is the... And then I got to step up and direct a couple of scenes. Great. So that was put it all into action. Was that, was that as you expected it to be? Like once you were in the hot seat and you were doing it, did it seem to flow fairly easily? Were they responsive to you as a director? Yeah, every, everyone's fantastic. Like the, I think crew and cast are all pretty... Um, used to attachments. I think they're pretty common. And they were awesome. So great. So lovely. And because I had been there through the whole process, I was very prepared. I had my little map drawn out. And I'm like, thinking B camera's going to be here. Aids me there. And I thought about it. I was extremely nervous. It was nerve-wracking. Because doing your own work, you can be a bit more fluid. So if someone's like, oh, we want to cut this line and we want to maybe bring it in from there, you're like, Yep, that's fine. That's all good. I can see how that's going to edit. So yeah, that's work. so that's fine. Yeah. But when it's you know it's someone else's work, it's someone else's baby, you really want to make sure you've covered it right. That you've not missed a line. That you've not missed a beat, an emotional beat that a character's supposed to register on their face. Because they may be like, "Well, where's the close up of her thinking about that memory?" And you're like, "Oh God, fuck!" It's you just want to make sure you're really getting everything. Mm, and, and get the creating, coverage so that yeah. when someone steps into the edit it, which is a whole different team, mm. they've got the bits and pieces that, that they, they need, need. to yeah. get coverage. So when you think about what you want your next mm-hmm. creative chapter to be like, what does that, what's that look like for you? Will it be more attachments, more writing, another project that you create yourself? Yep. What would be the best case scenario for the next year worth of work? Um, well, I've sort of, I, in the last couple of years, I decided to be a lot more short term. I think when 20 something came to an end, cause we ended up going over to the States and nearly sold a spin off version of it. We had a development deal with FX, which is a cable network over there. So I wrote a pilot for them, delivered that. And then that fell over. It didn't go through to the next stage of making the pilot I sort of put all my eggs like I literally spent all my 20s on 20 something and it was a decade of writing synopsises of Jess and Josh are best friends and my computer is just backlogged with so many versions of that that when that came to an end I was like oh that's a shame that that didn't get that chance had all my 
everything in storage, ready to move to the States for the big LA dream. And I ended up living back at mum's and it all came crashing down. I thought I didn't want to put all my eggs in one basket again. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but felt like I was at the mercy of that project and waiting to see whether it went or didn't go. So I decided from then on that I was going to be do a lot more short-term things, collaborate more with other people, work outside my little pool, say yes to jobs maybe I used that, that I wouldn't have, A, because I thought they weren't my tone or style or B, I didn't think I was up for it. Um, so I just decided to say yes to a whole lot of different things and that has landed me in lots of great situations but mainly got me working with lots of different people. So I think now I'm ready. I was explaining to someone the other day and I was like, I sort of went through like a dating slutty stage and now I'm ready for a long-term commitment project again and I would love that to be in the form of a another show that I've written and I get to perform in. Um, so, I mean, that's really vague, but I don't really know much else. I haven't thought too far ahead, but I'd love to create another world, a half-hour comedy, or, you know, if there was any other legs in bringing 20-something back and making it a 30-something, like a little tally movie or something, that'd be great. I've written a couple of web series, which I'm going to release. So I think, yeah, just constantly hustling, doing lots of different things. Also, in that 10 years that you've described of you giving so much to 20-something, there's been this strange democratisation of technology, whereas yeah. once upon a time you had to go, OK, I've got this script, how can I get this made? I could make some friends with some filmmakers and maybe get a camera together and, yeah. like, now shoot it on your, like, phone, oh, get any any one of the 50 friends that we have, we know have amazing cameras yeah. to come and shoot it. It's just one of those things that you could totally do a different story mm. on your own back if you yeah. wanted to do... If you wanted to trial another world the way that you were allowed to with the 30, Channel 31 version of 20-something, yeah. now is the time to do that. Yeah. I just would love to touch on your process when you do know that you're writing because mm-hmm. for many people who write, it's a lonely process or it's a lone process, I should say, not necessarily yep. lonely, but there's no common, commonly discussed process by which someone says, this is how you write yep. a feature film. This is how you write a TV series. Mm-hmm. And there are books on the structure yep. but there's no books on the technique yeah and so if you set yourself the process of writing a web series for example and you said okay well I'm still working another job I'm, I've got my income coming in how does how do you steal writing time for yourself what does that look like and you know how how long can you write for in a session before your brain's done and you can't do yeah. it anymore yeah um I I used to think that like hours at the desk made me feel like I'd accomplished stuff. So when I was writing 20 something, I'd sit at the desk for ages and I was desperate to be taken seriously and be like seen to have a serious, you know, I've got a proper job. So I used to sit from 8am till like 5.30 or whatever, constantly. Like I'd go get lunch or whatever, but thumping things away. But if I was really honest with myself, a lot of the time I was looking at other things or not actually working. So... Last year, I got a desk at a hotspot, like shared office space in Collingwood, and I used to leave and do, a, you know, a day's work, but be more, if it wasn't working, get up and go, go for a walk, ride my bike, and I realised it's not about, I, I think, shorter bursts, maybe 
four hours and then like go do something else and maybe do like an afternoon thing or something. But for me, leaving the house and having a desk, <laughs> an office, was really important for me to separate home and work and to sort of cut, like, uh, schedule my time better. In terms of, like, how I creatively write, like, how I approach it, I don't really know. Like, I never really learned. It's always been very just... Was there a re- is there a research process as part of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like, I wrote a web series for a company last year that was all based on science, technology, engineering and maths, like, women that work in that field. And I knew nothing about that field, so I spent a lot of time sort of researching that. But I base things around something... Predominantly the work I do is comedy, or all of it is. I'll find something that is the funny bit and hang it off that, or a really funny dialogue and then hang a scene off that. I might, as I'm sure your phone is full of notes of just something funny that many, I saw. Many dictated while on the dance floor. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, I was just being overheard in cafe, you know, bang, 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 this, this and that, and that'll spark a whole something. I don't know. Yeah. To say I have a process or a, a way in which I approach it, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm making it up mm. as I go along. When I'm working on something, every single conversation I have is passed through the filter of, can I use this? Yes. So you vampirically, you know, <laughs> yeah. drain the life out of every friend's anecdote. Oh, yeah. But best mate's breakup story, mum's crisis, personal anecdote, like, you know, story yeah. you heard at the fruit shop when checking your groceries out. Like, it's just, oh, can I use this? Is this a thing? Oh, maybe that characterization is exactly what yeah. so-and-so needs. Oh, of course, she's pregnant. You exactly. know, like, it just all becomes I say it now to people's faces if they tell me something. I go, I'm going to use that just so you know if that comes up in something I'm doing. I'm telling you now. <laughs> it's public property. And then I was like, are you okay with that? And they're like, yep, fine. Rather than secretly sneaking it into a script and then them going, oh, that." Looks and sounds familiar. And if you say it often enough, people won't necessarily think they're signing their life away, but then you also have the yeah. get out of jail free card in case it does end up in a yeah. episode of The Wrong Girl Season 3. <laughs> 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 Jess Murray <laughs> as Jasmine Harris. <laughs> uh, so if I um, were to check in with you, I love to ask people, if I was checking with you in a year's time, you yep. know, or if, maybe even, I know you're, not, you're thinking more immediately, but... Yep. Is there a little totem of success that you that is there on the horizon that you think if I if, if I checked in with you in a year and you were like yep I've done that I'm I'm writing an app of this show or I've directed an app of this series sure. or I've you know what's one I've written a web series what's yep. one task or totem of success you would love to have in the can in a year's time? Well, do you know this has only just been a recent thing. It's not been something I've ever really strived for or wanted before. But I would love to make a film. I'd love to make like Australia's version of like a bridesmaids or something like a really funny, I guess maybe rom com esque sort of like just fun film. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Girls behaving badly. Well, maybe not even the bridesmaids. I use that as example, just as the tone that Kristen. Mm. I just massive fan of her. So, but yeah, I'd love to make some sort of fun film. Mm. Um, is there a strong? I mean, do you think when you think about what you want to make, is there a, is there a strong female through line to all the work you'd love to do? Do you think in terms of male protagonists much? Um, I don't know. I think probably I always base things very closely to 
my life and people around me. And I know that maybe sounds like some people will think, well, stretch yourself, think bigger than that. But that's just been my process up until now. And mm-hmm. I would love to break out of that. Cause it, but someone told me in a writing workshop, which gave me permission to do it, and I have run with it. <laughs> I said, life is funny enough. Don't create it, retell it. And he was like this big, you know, he'd written for Sex and City and all these things. And I was like, oh, great, good. So you're an accomplished writer. That's what you do. Am I allowed to do it? And it not seem like I'm just cheating. Like I used to think it was just cheating. But there's so much like you take something from real life and then in order to make it work as a script is a a lot of work. Like it's not just pulling this, this happened and you bang it down and it works. There's a lot of craft that goes around it. Um, But I have in terms of that, yeah, I think, I guess I think about things that uh, affect me or I would love to move past that. But in terms of it being about girls, yeah, sure, I do tend to tell stories more. But I think there's a, I think there's a universality to being, to specificity. Mm. Like you look at something like Transparent, for example, which is so ethnic, like so Jewish, so trans, so lesbian, so LA, so wealthy. It's so specific when you actually look at the stories that they're telling, but in that specificity is a universality because Mm. you get a chance to experience truth through human interaction that is ultimately very relatable. So true. And so I don't think it's actually uh, exclusive to tell a specific story about yeah. a certain experience. Well, it's like coming back to the the kids at film school doing the, I want a baby. <laughs> I want a child. <laughs> For you to pretend that you know a world that you don't actually know would be ridiculous. Well, exactly right. And you may as well just keep it simple and just go with... Absolutely. ...and find the truth of the situation and then mine that in, a, yeah. in the minutiae of that. And then, I'm not going to create like a character that's like a dog psychologist with like <laughs> overbearing parents. Uh, <laughs> look, don't write it. Don't, don't, don't discount it entirely. <laughs> oh, Jess, thank you so much for having a chat. It's, uh, oh, it's been, it's been a long time coming and I'm I really know. glad that we could do it. But most people can see... 20-something now on Netflix, yes. which is so great. So, I I, And in particular, I mean, yeah, Jess's performance is good, but look out for <laughs> the angry uh, restaurant manager in season one, played by me, and then oh God, the right. sexually inappropriate yoga student, <laughs> yoga teacher in season two, played by me. Two roles. Two roles. I like to think it's the same. get a season one and a season two role and they were different. I like to think that it's the same person. <laughs> and he's channeled his anger into being kind of creepy and a bit kind of like faux It is hippie. the same person. Yeah, he's had a haircut. Oh my God, I love it. Um, so if for no other reason, just look out for my cameos. Yeah. But also it's a good show. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and let's, let's fully hit up Netflix for, for a season three slash telly movie. Yeah, let's do it. I think it's time. All right. So that was my chat with Jess. One of my best takeaways, which I would love to overstate for listeners, is Jess's observation of how miserable she was in her day job as a waitress, which encouraged her to get active in the first place with listening to her creativity and taking time to develop her skills in the things she really wanted to do. In my observation, people who are miserable in their day jobs act out on those around them because they don't want to be there. Seeing other people who are living their truth is particularly jarring to those who aren't. And this brings me to what I believe is one of the main points of this podcast. 
quit your day job is not about ending employment. This is just about finding a way to facilitate doing the thing that you love to do. It might even be more nurturing for your developing passions if you don't put the pressure on them to provide you with your income. But by always making time to cultivate your passion, I believe that you inevitably find your purpose and your eight to six will be all the better for it. That's all for this week. Don't forget to check out 20 something, which is now screening on Netflix. And I want to put a special shout out to anyone who would like assistance with workshopping their passion project. Whether you are frustrated by your day job and don't know where to begin the process of finding an outlet, or if you're just stuck on the seventh draft of your novel and creatively blocked, I'm looking for volunteers to help me develop a workshop that I'm putting together. So this could be something that we get together and talk about in person or via Skype. But I am as intrigued by hearing your problems as hopefully you are by solving them. Drop me a line at danbrophy at gmail.com or send me a message via Instagram, which is at danbrophy. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, try painting something. Thank you.